Hi, everyone. Welcome to the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui, and I am a practicing cardiothoracic surgeon who specializes in the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Throughout my career, I've been blessed to work side by side with some of the brightest minds in atrial fibrillation treatment, diagnosis, and prevention. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to share those insights with you by giving you a front row seat to intimate conversations with AFib experts from around the world. So turn up the volume, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Amin Kionkui. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Thomas Doolin, who's an electrophysiologist who recently gave a great talk on how much AFib is enough. And specifically, we talk about how much AFib is enough to cause a stroke, the recent use of monitoring devices, and also we cover some topics regarding the Watchman device and other opportunities to manage the left atrial appendage. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Thomas Doolin about how much AFib is enough. All right, everyone. Well, welcome to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui. Today, I have a colleague up here in Northern California. He's an electrophysiologist and associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. If you look him up online, I don't think you'll be surprised once you actually meet this guy. Five-star reviews across the board. I don't think I've ever seen a physician get five-star reviews in every single category. Sometimes it's like 4.8, 4.9. That's pretty impressive. He recently gave what I thought was a fascinating talk at the 38th Annual Advanced Heart Disease uh, Symposium that UCSF puts on every day, or every year, I should say. And it was about how much AFib is enough. In other words, how much AFib can cause a stroke or some complication that we're all worried about. Our guest today, he went to undergraduate at Dartmouth College, then he went to Yale for medical school. And then he really hopped on the UCSF train and did his internal medicine, then his cardiology fellowship, and then finished his EP fellowship there in 2014. He then went up to OHSU in Oregon and practiced, and now he's back at UCSF. He has nearly 80 peer-reviewed articles already in his young career, and he has a specific interest in both the epidemiology within atrial fibrillation and how it affects these consequences we talked about today and also exercise, which I was really interested to learn more about. Maybe we can do that on another episode. So everyone, please welcome and thank you. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Thomas Duland. Welcome, Tommy. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good, good. So yeah, so I was sitting here on a Saturday watching this conference online, and I thought you got into some really interesting data, brought up some really thought-provoking ideas about how much AFib is enough? So let's let's dig into that. Yeah, this is a question that is becoming increasingly relevant, not only for us in electrophysiology, but for general cardiologists and for really all practitioners, certainly primary care practitioners as well. And it is in part motivated by two sort of advances in our field, if you will. And one of those is the proliferation of ambulatory monitoring. So we're getting there are these technologies now where we can monitor patients quite easily for 14 to, to 30 days. The monitors are really easy for patients to wear. The algorithms to detect atrial fibrillation are really pretty good. But not only have there been advances in these percutaneous ambulatory 
the monitors or, or skin monitors, but we're seeing widespread use of implantable loop recorders now. These devices can be implanted in the office setting. They provide two to three years of surveillance for arrhythmias like atrial fibrillation. And then there's a ton of devices that are being marketed directly towards patients or devices that they can go online and buy, devices that interface with their phone or actually watches that they wear that can be used to detect atrial fibrillation in some cases with pretty high fidelity. So there's been just a proliferation in, in our looking for this arrhythmia. So we're getting better at finding it, but we're also, I would say, better at treating it and better at treating it, at least with regard to stroke prevention. So 10, 15 years ago, a patient has atrial fibrillation. Now you got to put them on warfarin. And that's a pretty difficult drug to take. Lots of monitoring that has to occur. There's lots of drug, lots of drug food interactions with warfarin. And so it's a, a pretty difficult therapy to be on. And now we have these newer DOAC or NOAC medications that don't require monitoring, have pretty minimal interactions and are in most cases safer and more efficacious than warfarin. So not only are we getting better at finding atrial fibrillation, but it's easier to prevent stroke among these patients. And so this question then comes up is in patients with short episodes of atrial fibrillation that we ordinarily would have never have found before when we were just identifying atrial fibrillation by 12 lead ECGs in clinic. The question is, how much atrial fibrillation does an individual patient need to have? The risk of stroke increases. And how much atrial fibrillation do they need to have where the risk of stroke increases such that anticoagulation would benefit that individual, which is, of course, the real question that we're trying to ask. Who do we need to anticoagulate? And this is most readily apparent, or this is the biggest issue among patients with pacemakers or defibrillators in the nature of So we are constantly monitoring their atrial rhythm. The device very precisely recognizes when they have these atrial high rate episodes, when there's a fast atrial rate, it logs them, it logs the duration and the frequency of them. And then they come to see us in clinic or we get their remote interrogation. And we find that six months ago, they had 30 seconds of what looks like atrial fibrillation. And now what do we do? We would have never have known that patient had atrial fibrillation if they didn't have their pacemaker in place. We have never would have considered anticoagulation for that individual. But now we're faced with, we have this data, they have atrial fibrillation, and do they need to be put on an anticoagulant? And that's in electrophysiology, that's what we struggle with the most, is device-detected atrial fibrillation. But there are, of course, all, now all these other technologies that are in use that are also picking up atrial fibrillation. And, and the question uh, remains how much atrial fibrillation do we need to start an anticoagulant? Right. So let's kind of get into that part. So here you are, somebody comes into your clinic. Let's say this is somebody without a history of AFib, right? They've bought their Apple Watch because they want to make sure they hit all their activity meters, right? They want to see pictures of their kids on their watch when they're walking around. And then one day it says your heart rate's irregular. You may have AFib. So they go see their primary doc. And their primary doc says, yeah, in fact, you know, looks like your Apple Watch said you had some AFib and I'm going to send you to my favorite electrophysiologist. So Tommy, now you're seeing this patient in clinic. So how do you go from kind of that real world experience to deciding, hey, is this person going to be placed on anticoagulation? What's their stroke risk? How do I work up that AFib? Yeah, good question. Well, the first thing I'll say is that we really want to confirm the diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. And as I'm sure you're aware, not 
every arrhythmia episode picked up by an Apple Watch and designated as atrial fibrillation or possible atrial fibrillation ends up being that arrhythmia. So this is the case in all areas of medicine. The primary data is of utmost importance. So we want to see what do these tracings look like as there's lots of other arrhythmia phenomenon that can mimic atrial fibrillation. And so we want to exclude those or, or instead establish the diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. And your question brings up the broader issue as to does the technology that was used to diagnose the atrial fibrillation, does it matter? Is 30 minutes of atrial fibrillation the same whether it's detected with an Apple Watch or a Holter monitor or a pacemaker lead? And you could argue as these episodes get longer that there's probably no difference. And I would say that's likely true. But I think the thought experiment of what about 10 seconds of atrial fibrillation, right? So what if a patient comes to see me and they're in sinus rhythm, but they have an ECG that documents atrial fibrillation. So an ECG is 10 seconds worth of data. So at some point they had 10 seconds of atrial fibrillation. You can imagine that it's pretty unlikely that as the tech is hooking up the ECG leads, they went into atrial fibrillation and as they were taking off the leads, they came out of atrial right. fibrillation. Right? So that <laughs> patient unlikely. is probably, yeah, very unlikely. That patient is probably very different than the patient in whom we've been monitoring for the last three years with their pacemaker and has had one 10 second episode of atrial fibrillation. So both patients have 10 seconds worth of data showing that they were in atrial fibrillation, but I would think about them, I would consider them to be quite different in reality. And so the monitoring method or the means to which they're diagnosed with atrial fibrillation probably does matter. When I think about anticoagulation, we're obviously thinking about what is that individual stroke risk and we assess that stroke risk with the CHADS VAST score. A paper that I really like was published in 2019. It was published, I believe, in a circulation. And what the authors did is they looked at stroke risk among individuals who had devices with atrial leads. And they stratified that risk of stroke, not only by the patient's CHADS VAS score, but also by the duration of atrial fibrillation that was picked up on the atrial lead. And Ron Passman was the senior author on the paper. And the results are, are probably as you would expect, right? If you have very short episodes of atrial fibrillation and your CHADS VAS score is low, your yearly risk of stroke is also low. If you are having long episodes defined as more than 24 hours of atrial fibrillation, if you have a high CHADS VAS score, your risk of stroke is high. But it was, it was interesting to see relatively linear or as you would expect gradation between duration of atrial fibrillation, CHADS VAS score, and stroke risk. So as for a patient with 10 minutes of atrial fibrillation, let's say, as their CHADS VAS score goes up, so too does their risk of stroke, not surprising. And then for patients at an individual CHADS VAS score, the risk of stroke also seems to increase as the duration of atrial fibrillation increases. And the study just had very sort of broad characterization of duration of atrial fibrillation. They looked at no atrial fibrillation versus six minutes to 24 hours versus over 24 hours. And so I really like that manuscript when I am evaluating a patient who's had these shorter lived episodes of atrial fibrillation. It sounds kind of complicated. And if you look at the table a couple of times, it's, the message is pretty clear, which is that if your CHADS VAS score is three or greater, then any atrial fibrillation lasting longer than six minutes puts the yearly risk of stroke above 1%. And this 1% is, it's not a magic number, but it's generally the line in the sand that we say, okay, if your really yearly risk of thromboembolic events is above 1%, 
you should probably be on an anticoagulant, one of the not one of the newer anticoagulants. So Chad's vast score of three or greater, if they have six minutes or more of atrial fibrillation, they should be anticoagulated. Chad's vast score of two, they should probably have more than 24 hours of atrial fibrillation before you initiate anticoagulation. But if they're having some of these shorter episodes, you probably don't need to be on an anticoagulant. And then low Chad's vast score is zero or one. Those patients don't really have a you know class one indication for anticoagulation, regardless of the duration of their atrial fibrillation. Now, important to recognize that this study was just an observational study looking at the yearly risk of stroke. This study was not looking at does anticoagulation improve mortality, for instance, in, in these individual cohorts or reduce the risk of stroke in these individual cohorts. But for now, that's, I think, some of the best data or some of the most easily digestible data. There are two ongoing randomized clinical trials that we're anxiously awaiting the results of to help guide us in this scenario. And in both these trials, they're taking patients with short episodes of atrial fibrillation between six minutes and 24 hours, picked up by a pacemaker or defibrillator lead in the atrium. And they're randomizing those individuals to anticoagulation or no anticoagulation. And they're looking at stroke outcomes. So those studies are really going to be important for conceptualizing how do we treat these these shorter episodes of atrial fibrillation. And I, I presume that Chad's VAS score is for enrollment is two or higher in those studies. I think until we have that randomized trial data, we're left with some of this observational data. I mean, that's primarily what I currently use for anticoagulation decision-making. Right. This whole concept of, of how much is enough, there have been three reasonably sized studies looking at duration of atrial fibrillation, pacemakers and defibrillator leads in looking at the association between death or, or stroke. And it's interesting when you look at the data that probably the most well-cited study was the ASSERTS study published in the New England Journal. And they found that having more than six minutes of atrial fibrillation increased the risk of stroke. And that was a statistically significant increase in the risk of stroke. And so that's where this idea of six minutes came from. And there's nothing magic about six minutes. And usually they're the authors for these studies are choosing these cutoffs for somewhat pragmatic reasons, right? Shorter episodes are much more likely to represent noise and the devices don't necessarily store the data for those episodes. So it's hard to adjudicate where they truly atrial fibrillation. And so the, for a variety of reasons, they chose these time cutoffs, but six minutes was the one chosen for, for a cert. And that increased the risk of stroke. But interestingly, when the authors went back and looked at the, this time cutoff, and change where these cutoffs were, they found that actually you probably had to have more than 24 hours of atrial fibrillation. And that the individuals between six minutes and 24 hours of atrial fibrillation, the risk of stroke wasn't substantially increased compared to those without atrial fibrillation or, or with episodes less than six minutes. So we don't quite know where this magic time cutoff is and how long an individual has to be in atrial fibrillation to increase the risk of stroke. And frankly, that also gets into this whole other sort of fascinating conversation, which is why do patients who have atrial fibrillation have strokes? And I think it's really, it seems quite straightforward, right? The atrium is fibrillating. It's not effectively moving blood. Stagnant blood tends to clot. The lowest velocities tend to occur in the left atrial appendage. So clot form in the left atrial appendage and embolize and cause a stroke. And in fact, that guides some of our clinical practice, right? If you're a patient with atrial fibrillation and you're not on anticoagulation and you show up to an emergency room and you say, I went into this rhythm 12 hours ago, they're probably pretty likely to cardiovert you. 
without further imaging to exclude left atrial appendage thrombus. Whereas if you surpass this magic 24-hour mark, right. good luck, you're going to have to get admitted, get a TE or CT scan right. or some other way to exclude thrombus. And so this idea of, oh, you have to be, if you're, as long as you're not in the rhythm for more than 24 hours, there's no way you're going to have a thrombus that we can safely cardiovert you. But one of the fascinating observations from these, these pacemaker and defibrillator studies is that if you look at the people who have uh, strokes in these studies, only about 10 to 15% of them have had atrial fibrillation in the month prior to their stroke. In other words, it's not that they're going into atrial fibrillation and then once they surpass this 24-hour mark, that's when they're having these strokes. It's not that straightforward. And it really calls into our question, our sort of our paradigm for how these strokes are occurring. It's led the thought about maybe atrial fibrillation isn't the true cause of these strokes, or maybe atrial fibrillation is instead a marker of some more global process that's happening. That's various terms and hypotheses have been used, but is there some atrial myopathy that's occurring? And there's this process that's occurring in the left atrium that is resulting in decreased atrial function. Maybe it's resulting in changes in the coagulation cascade or dysfunction. And maybe that those same processes are also resulting in electrical remodeling that promotes atrial fibrillation. But atrial fibrillation in and of itself is not the along the causal pathway for these strokes. Maybe it's just a sort of a biomarker, if you will, that this process is occurring. And so this temporal correlation between atrial fibrillation episodes and stroke, I think it has really raised our eyebrow as to whether that could be occurring. It's also interesting that, and this is a subject of active research, and I would say we don't fully know, but if you look at patients who have undergone atrial fibrillation ablation and are no longer having atrial arrhythmias, and certainly at the higher CHADS VAS scores, their risk of stroke doesn't seem to return back to that of an age-matched population. And so maybe there is some other process that's, that's going on that's increasing the risk of stroke in that individual, and whether that's natural myopathy or some other pathway, we're not quite sure. And then finally, one of the other things is there's lots of reasons you can have a stroke, right? So thromboembolic strokes from atrial fibrillation are the ones we're, of course, talking about. But all these patients tend to have, not all these patients, but many of these patients tend to have other comorbidities atherosclerotic disease, both in their carotid arteries and uh, intracerebral vessels. And so there are multiple mechanisms through which patients can have stroke. And just because an individual has atrial fibrillation does not mean that they've had a thromboembolic event. So very simple sounding or easily digestible story that we learned in medical school, which is atrial fibrillation causes the atrium not to beat in a nice, normal contractile manner. And that stagnant blood clots, that stagnant blood, then or those clots then embolize. That story is uh, much more complicated when you start looking under the hood. Right. There's so many ways I want to take everything that you just said. I was burning through some questions through my mind. So I'll, <laughs> I'll keep it. I'll kind of go back to the original idea, which was, okay, so this patient shows up. Yeah. You do an EKG. Or the family practice docs sends you their medical record and said, hey, look, I have this documented 10 seconds of AFib. Yeah. Um, they come to your clinic, you put your stethoscope on them, you check your pulse, you do an AKG, they're in normal sinus rhythm. Yeah. From time to time, they say they have palpitations. What is your specific monitoring device of choice? And I know 
I don't think either of us are endorsed by any of these companies. If we are, we'll oh, list yeah. them in our disclosures. But can you talk to me specifically about what device you trust to then sure. not, I uh, guess, screen the patient, but give you more information about what their AFib burden, let's yeah. say, will actually be? And, and I, but I will say before even going into that, if someone walks into my office holding an ECG documenting atrial fibrillation, especially if they say I have palpitations, that's all I need to hear. If, as long as that patient has a CHADS valve score that merits anticoagulation, that patient, in my mind, should be anticoagulated. Because again, that's how in our early understanding of the, or the studies that demonstrated the benefit of WARF, for instance, that's how those patients were enrolled. Like they had to have an ECG, in some cases, hold their monitor documenting the arrhythmia. So for that patient, I would anticoagulate, but I would certainly want to know how much atrial fibrillation are they having because that has other implications for do we need to worry about a reduced ejection fraction mm -hmm. from attacking myopathy or how well are we controlling their rates during atrial fibrillation as potentially a target to improve their symptoms. So here at our center, we the most commonly prescribed monitor is a 14-day extended Holter monitor. And so we use iRhythm Zio monitor. I in terms of the other products out there, I will we I read probably three to four thousand of these ambulatory monitors a year. I see a lot of them. We have a lot of different companies on the formulary. I will say that their algorithm for detecting atrial fibrillation is is quite good. It can get tripped up sometimes. It'll it can die can result in a diagnosis of atrial flutter when it's really atrial fibrillation and vice versa. Implications of that with regard to anticoagulation, if you're gonna make an error, that's the a totally acceptable one. It has implications for perhaps an ablation strategy for that patient, uh, but not for anticoagulation decision making. So I find that's a that's a pretty good test. Patch monitors, I think, perform better than more traditional monitors that have various wires. There's often a lot of noise as the patients are moving around is frequently misinterpreted by automated algorithms as atrial fibrillation on those monitors. And so those can be a little tougher to read or to, to have a definitive diagnosis. And there's, there's several of these now patch-based ambulatory monitors that provide 10 to 14 days worth of data on the market. Going back to what you said earlier, when you referenced the other paper in CERC, where you talked about this six-minute or 24-hour timeline, yeah, I, I forget whether you mentioned, was that over a certain period of time of the pacemaker? Was that over? Yeah, it's a good question. I have to go back and look. I, I believe these are longest episodes, so single longest episode, not cumulative burden, Okay, which is a, a nice way of, of looking at it because the devices readily give us that data. So longest atrial high rate episode, for instance. And this, that was, again, based upon device data, not ambulatory monitoring data. But I think right now, we probably treat those pretty similar for these shorter episodes in terms of if I would anticoagulate a patient with seven minutes of atrial fibrillation on a pacemaker, that same patient, if I had seen seven minutes of atrial fibrillation on a Zio monitor, I would probably I would anticoagulate them as well. Gotcha. Another thing I always find interesting, I'm trying to pick the brain of my EP or any EP is what is your threshold that you cross over by which you decide, okay, I've done some intermittent monitoring, but now I really feel this patient needs a cam of some sort. So whether a link or something that's going to give you that, what is that threshold for you? Jimmy, are you distinguishing between 10 to 14 day monitor versus implantable loop recorder? Right. Yes. It's a good question. So I would say the probably the most common reason we implant loop recorders is for cryptogenic stroke. So, you know, our neurology colleagues refer these patients to us because they've had a stroke, 
can identify any clear etiology, you know, we want to screen for atrial fibrillation. Probably the second most common is our really infrequent palpitation symptoms. And so if a patient's having palpitations that last for 30 minutes once every six months, the likelihood that you're going to capture an episode while they're wearing a 14-day monitor is you know, not that high. And so for some of those individuals, especially when the diagnosis of atrial fibrillation would change our management, so they have a CHADS RAS score of five, let's say, so we would definitely anticoagulate if we saw atrial fibrillation, that would be a circumstance where I would consider putting in a loop recorder. I'll say that for that indication, especially for a savvy patient, I'm putting in less and less loop recorders in favor of smartphone-based monitoring devices. There's a device now that it's you look at it and you just say, oh, I, I should have thought of this. This is a great <laughs> idea. It's basically a Bluetooth-enabled device. Patient puts it in both their hands and rests it on their knee. And it gives a six-lead ECG. It's made by a company called AliveCore called the Cardius XL. I've, the fidelity of the tracings is quite good with that. And so I frequently recommend that for patients who have fairly infrequent episodes that we know the likelihood of us catching it with a Xyo monitor is going to be pretty low, especially if they're savvy with their smartphone and it's pretty easy to carry this thing around. So that's a, a nice alternative to an implantable loop recorder, which those, I have no idea what they are billing at now, but when these newer devices that can be implanted with an injection technique, if you will, right under the skin. We, I remember we did one in clinic and some guy brought his bill in and it was like $20,000. His insurance was, oh, wow. you know, of course, didn't pay that. But nonetheless, it's, you know, it's this huge cost. It's cardia, I think is like between $100 and $120 on Amazon. So yeah, I'll, I'll typically, for certain patients, we'll recommend these sort of patient-centric or these devices that are monitored directly to patients. If the patient's not good with an iPhone or they're just not able to, to comply with that, we'll put in a, a loop recorder in that scenario. So really infrequent episodes where it would change management. If we're just doing it, their CHADS VAS score is zero. That's always a, a debate and a discussion with the patient. What are we going to gain by knowing that you have these short episodes of atrial fibrillation that are really infrequent if we're not going to initiate anticoagulation? And so there's a that's a a much larger debate. But in those individuals, I we may just continue to watch things clinically and then maybe catch an episode as atrial fibrillation progresses and becomes more frequent or longer in duration. And then would it be fair to say that you apply that same sort of algorithm to the patients that you've done in uh, intervention for? Let's say someone comes in with paroxysmal and you've done PBI. Well, I would say that's not, that's has not been my practice. So, okay. There certainly are. So from a research standpoint, you can make a very good argument that in these new pulse field ablation trials, right, that are coming out, you can say, well, it'd be great if everyone could have an implantable loop recorder after their ablation. And then we can look at maybe a more patient-centric clinical outcome, such as burden of atrial fibrillation, right? Because 30 seconds of atrial fibrillation picked up on a, on a monitor may not be the what patients are really interested in. And certainly when we talk to patients, we, I think, are very upfront in telling them that we're unlikely to fully cure them of their atrial fibrillation, but the goal is to impact burden, symptoms, et cetera, related to it. So you can make a good argument for putting those in post-ablation patients if you're doing a research study. But my philosophy on why are we doing ablation, and we're primarily doing it to impact symptoms. There are select patient populations that we've identified, including those with non-ischemic cardiomyopathies related to tachyarrhythmias or caused by the tachyarrhythmias who have you know, little to no scar and MRI. 
those patients seem to have mortality benefit with ablation versus medication for maintaining sinus rhythm. Uh, but for most of our patients, we're trying to impact symptoms. And so the main reason I'll do something like an implantable loop recorder is if it's going to impact long-term anticoagulation decision-making. Our current guidelines tell us that post-ablation, anticoagulation should be continued based upon CHADS vascore. So if the patient had a CHADS vascore that merited anticoagulation without, anti, without ablation, then they should be continuing on their anticoagulant post-ablation. But there are some patients who, for whom maybe they have a CHADS vascore that's maybe it's one, and they, it's really important to them to know if they're having atrial fibrillation and that's going to help them with decision-making. Or maybe their CHAS VAS score is kind of two or three where we would recommend it, but they say, look, I'm, I, no way. I don't want to be on this anti-quag. I'm only going to come back on it or stay on it if you show me that I'm having more atrial fibrillation. So those are some of the individuals that I would consider putting in a loop recorder. But as a matter of routine practice, I don't implant these loop recorders. I primarily go up symptoms and intermittent monitoring. Then you brought up a, a really interesting point there. I want to kind of take in a slightly different direction. The patient who says, I don't want to be on anticoagulation, but let's say they have a CHADS VASC of three. So mm-hmm. you would otherwise recommend that they should be on one. Yeah. What is, again, a threshold question? What is your threshold to say, okay, I'm going to manage your left atrial appendage versus I'm going to recommend an oral anticoagulant? Yeah, that's a good question. So there, for a patient who just doesn't want to be on anticoagulation, right? It's interesting how, for instance, Watchman came to market and patients were enrolled in the randomized trials establishing the efficacy of Watchman versus how these devices were approved by the FDA, right? And there's, I think, a lot of fancy footwork that occurs in terms of getting patients approved for these devices. But if you look at the labeling by the FDA, it's really labeled for those with a CHAS VAS score of three or greater who are poor long-term anti-quag you know, candidates. And that's left intentionally vague. Well, what about the patient that says, I'm not going to take an anticoagulation long-term? Well, you could argue that they're a poor long-term anticoagulation candidate because right. they're not going to be compliant with the therapy. So furthermore, these devices are not studied among individuals who have GI bleeding. They're studying in patients who have atrial fibrillation, a CHADS VAS score of uh, X or greater. They're not studied in, among individuals who have contraindications to long-term anticoagulation. That was kind of piled on there at the end in terms of a CMS coverage decision. So I'm not, I would be certainly willing to consider it in a discussion with the patient. The thing that I think happens with certainly these endocardial devices that we use is patients see their primary care physician or general cardiologist, or they watch television or listen to the radio, and they think, hey, there's this magic bullet that allows me to come off anticoagulation. And in the long term, maybe that's true, but there's a bunch of caveats that I think patients don't quite understand, which is that they need to be on something to protect them from thrombus formation on the face of the device for the first six months. And if you look at the directions for use for these devices, they recommend indefinite aspirin, at least for the Watchman device, after six months. And there's some data from 2012, there's a randomized trial looking at aspirin versus apixaban among patients who were felt to be poor long-term anticoagulation candidates. Study was stopped at a year because apixaban was clearly better than aspirin for stroke prevention. 
And interestingly, and this has been repeated in a couple other studies, the risk of bleeding was not different between apixaban and aspirin. Now, the study was not powered to look at bleeding differences. It wasn't a primary endpoint of the study. But when we're treating our patients with aspirin, we may be exposing them to a similar risk of bleeding compared to, let's say, apixaban. And we're clearly giving them a therapy that's inferior for stroke prevention. So being on aspirin indefinitely is not, I wouldn't say, a, a great treatment for some of these patients because it's, again, it is, there is risk of bleeding and they're probably not getting much in the way of atrial fibrillation stroke prevention. Bottom line is patients need to just understand that the, you're trading an upfront risk of implant procedural related complication and a risk of bleeding maybe in that first six months for hopefully longer-term benefit or or avoidance of stroke. The five-year data from these randomized trials has been published, and there does appear to be mortality benefit to these implantable devices. So there there is, I would say, reasonably robust data supporting their use among certain patients at elevated risk of stroke. And I think clearly this is the, not clearly, but I think this is the way things are going, right? Patients with atrial fibrillation, one of their biggest complaints is the need to take anticoagulation. There's lots of nuisance bleeding. There's these unsightly bruises on their arms. They cut themselves when they're shaving. I do not routinely, or I don't know if I've ever implanted a watchman for someone because they bleed a little bit after they shave. But as data accumulates, as these devices get safer and faster to implant, I think that as the procedural time decreases and the procedural safety increases, I think that they will be more and more widely used. There's still, in my mind at least, there's still some questions that are not totally answered and that can be difficult to deal with clinically, such as what do you do with a patient who has a Watchman device and they're off anticoagulation, the device was implanted a year ago, they come to the ED with atrial fibrillation. They're not on an anticoagulant. Do you just cardiovert them? Do you do a TE first? Do you anticoagulate them after? I think most people are doing some sort of imaging to make sure there's no thrombus, cardioverting them, and then sending them out with a month of anticoagulation. That's It's not this sort of magic, again, treatment where they can just walk in, get cardioverted, and walk out of the ED and not have, not have to do anything else on their end. And then there's this also, there's this issue of these patients have these nitinol-based devices in their left atrial appendage. Can we do an ablation procedure on them. There's certainly in the short to medium term after these devices are implanted, there's some data to suggest that our ablation as we come up the anterior aspect of the left pulmonary veins or we're heating that tissue, we may distort the anatomy of that tissue and and cause iatrogenic leaks in the device. And some studies have suggested that the risk of iatrogenic leak may be as high as 20%. That always gives me pause in terms of bringing that patient for radiofrequency catheter ablation and then how is that going to change in the setting of pulse field ablation? These are all just questions that remain uh, to be answered. Right. I think another question that we're uh, tackling in the surgical field, and I'm sure you're tackling in the EP world as well, is this whole situation of managing the left atrial appendage in somebody that does not have a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. Right. But as you had mentioned earlier, they have some sort of atrial myopathy that puts them at a greater risk, like you had mentioned before. What do we do with those appendages? I mean, at the time of surgery, we're compelled to manage them because we want to try to limit that embolic stroke risk if they were to develop atrial fibrillation. Or like you said earlier, they have an atrial myopathy. Should we be just leaving these appendages alone? And it's really hard when you have the opportunity to manage the appendage at the time of surgery 
right. to, to do that, to say, yeah. look, I have this opportunity to possibly decrease the risk of stroke. I don't want to leave that on the table. I want to do what I think in my hands is a very low risk intervention, manage the left atrial appendage, and hopefully decrease the risk of stroke. How does that conversation or that philosophy play out in the EP world with, again, patients who do not have atrial fibrillation, likely have an atrial myopathy? What do you do with those appendages? Is there a role for prophylactic left atrial appendage management? Yeah, it's a great question. And one that's not, obviously, certainly hasn't been well studied. I would say that our enthusiasm, at least my enthusiasm as an electrophysiologist for closing that appendage is relatively lukewarm at present. So the data supporting appendage closure, long-term efficacy, it has shown improvement with use of devices like these clip devices. And there was a very, I think, influential study, let's say, published in Jack at least probably a decade or so ago, which looked at the true closure rates among patients. It was a bit of a biased sample. So it was patients who were getting TEEs for clinical reasons, but it had some sort of surgical closure in the past. Know the numbers off the top of my head, but I think at least half of them had appendages that weren't fully closed. And there's data published in Heart Rhythm looking at patients with incompletely closed appendages, suggesting that if you take someone and you incompletely close their appendage, so you leave like this sort of short stalk of tissue that communicates with the appendage, you probably increase their risk of stroke relative to their previous CHADS VAS score. So if we could effectively close these appendages 100% of the time, I think we would be a little uh, more inclined to more widely recommend it. I think that in the absence of that, we, I think, most of us would want to see more data before routinely referring these patients for appendage closure. I saw a guy in clinic two weeks ago, and I just had a conversation with him last week. He went for mitral valve surgery, very experienced surgeon, and is outside of our center. Was, wasn't, wasn't you, of course, but a very experienced surgeon. He had atrial fibrillation. He presented with acute compensated heart failure. He had atrial fibrillation in the hospital before his surgery. I think it was very reasonable to close his appendage, and his appendage was closed. But it wasn't. It was. It was oversown. And the guy came in and he wanted to come off anticoagulation. He said, "Look, they told me that they did this extra thing during my surgery, so I didn't have to be on an anticoagulant." And I, his Chad's vascular, I think, is one. So he probably doesn't merit anticoagulation regardless. But we got a CT scan to look at his appendage. And lo and behold, there's these two channels that connect to the H, to the left atrial appendage. And in fact, when you look at the 3D rendering of the left atrium, the appendage looks, it's all there because the contrast is just going through these two sort of narrow channels. And so now you took a guy who had none of this happen, had he just showed up to my clinic and said, yeah, when I was hospitalized for acute decompensated heart failure, I had some atrial fibrillation. We'd probably say, yeah, you, you don't need to be on, necessarily need to be on long-term anticoagulation. But now you have this incompletely closed appendage. We do have some data suggesting that probably increases the risk. And that patient is probably going to be on long-term plugging of, of the appendage or undergoes a, maybe a, a bit of a long run for a short slide to undergo a repeat surgical procedure to close it off again. But those are some of the options available to him. I think in that scenario, he's probably just going to stay on anticoagulation. But it's again, it's a patient who maybe didn't need to be on anticoagulation, who's now sort of wed to that therapy because of an incompletely closed appendage. 
Right. So I think that when it's done in that scenario, the stakes are higher. You, you got to, as often is the case in medicine, right? When you're, when you're doing interventions, invasive procedures for, for diseases that it's a symptomatic for the patient, or maybe even just mildly symptomatic, but the procedure doesn't have mortality benefit and you're doing it mostly for symptom control. You got to get these things right because there's really very little margin for error and, and certainly appendage closure in a patient without atrial fibrillation would fall into that category because of the consequences that can occur with an incompletely closed one. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was something I often talk to my, my peers about is learn to close the left atrial appendage on patients who have, who have atrial fibrillation, follow your results, mm-hmm. make sure you're doing that well. And then yeah. if you're going to tackle a patient who you think has is at high risk for either postoperative AFib or some sort of stroke-like problem down the road, then you can tackle that patient without a history of AFib who may have some atrial myopathy who you want to manage the left atrial appendage. But it kind of gets back to know how good you are at what you're doing yeah. before you start offering it to everybody. Yeah. No, I think that's something that you guys do really well. And in part because you have a great relationship with your electrophysiologist and you hopefully they're feel comfortable enough providing you with that feedback. Like, Hey, I got a CT scan on this guy six months later and his appendage is still open. But I think a lot of times these patients kind of disappear into the abyss, at least from the surgeon's perspective, they did the surgery, the patient did really well from the surgery and you're not following them long-term. And so many of these things don't become evident for you know months to years down the road until someone takes another look and finds out that, oh, the appendage actually isn't quite closed or the patient is having atrial fibrillation again, despite someone who did the ablation three years earlier thinking that patient was cured from the arrhythmia. So you're totally right that we have to be diligent about finding or following these individuals over time. And as you're well aware, success can be defined in lots of different ways. And we have to always think about how do patients define success, but the closer you look for more atrial fibrillation after any invasive procedure, the more likely you are to find it. And in part, what accounts for some of these huge discrepancies that we see not only in the published literature about the success of ablation, but what individual providers are telling their patients in clinic is the likelihood of the success of the procedure that they're recommending, right? So I think this was first... I fairly bravely published by the Hopkins group at the early on in the atrial fibrillation ablation experience saying like, look, these results aren't as good as, as we would perhaps like them to be or, or what we think they are. So yeah, I think your point's spot on in terms of we need to know that we're doing this right uh, before we start doing it in patients who are lower and lower risk. Is there anything else that you want to cover? Probably taking up more of your time than you originally had dedicated to me. So I thank you for that. Um, I I think we've talked a lot about how much AFib is enough. I think you've really crystallized some of the points as far as time and Chad's vascular. I think that'll be really helpful for other physicians as well as the patients that are listening. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap up this episode? Well, I think I would say that some of the important answers of this are, as we alluded to early, hopefully forthcoming, that there are these two randomized trials looking into this. That's going to provide the highest level of data for us to hopefully answer this question. And so I hope, I think the time horizon is probably within one or two years that we'll start to see some of these results published or or presented at meetings. And so that'll give us uh, sort of some clarity on the issue. And I'm sure as 
therapies continue to evolve. And as we continue to improve our ability to, to pick up atrial fibrillation in individuals, this calculus will further progress to where we're talking about now 25 minutes of atrial fibrillation different than four hours of atrial fibrillation, et cetera. And the other thing I'll say is that as these technologies progress, we're only going to see more and more atrial fibrillation. <laughs> right. You know, there's been a couple studies now where they just take individuals, usually those at a little bit higher risk. So they're, you know, over 65 or they have other co- cardiovascular comorbidities, but they get, you know, 400, 500 of them put in loop recorders and everyone. And it's pretty insane when you look at how much atrial fibrillation is out there. Like 30% of patients will have atrial fibrillation episodes that last longer than five minutes. And so these patients that come into clinic and get a 12 lead ECG are really the tip of the iceberg. And there's this, it's the burden of it or the amount of atrial fibrillation that that we're seeing is almost, you start to scratch your head and you say, is this really, is this pathology or is this to start sort of part of normal physiology as we get older? And so we're only going to be seeing more of it, further grappling with these questions of which of these therapies that we have shown to be effective in really symptomatic patients or patients at really high risk, how do we then apply them to the lower risk patients or the patients with less of the arrhythmia or the patients we never even knew had this arrhythmia five or 10 years ago. So yeah, it's a, it's, it's on one hand, it's a daunting task and it can be frustrating, but on the other hand, it's, it's a fun time to be in medicine. And as we you know, all work towards trying to figure this out. Absolutely. And it just reminds me of this one antidote I, I heard in medical school. Someone talked about this acronym vomit. I don't know if, if you're familiar with it, but <laughs> victim of modern technology, right? Yeah. Are we getting to the point where we're getting so good at picking things up that we're picking up stuff that doesn't matter. Right. And I guess hopefully all those questions we could answer moving yeah. forward. Signal from the noise. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, this was awesome. Thank you again so much for your time. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with you. And I hope we can do an episode soon talking about exercise in AFib because I know that's another area that you're very passionate about. Yeah, Thank definitely. You. Look forward to it. Thanks, Dr. Thanks a lot. All right. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can catch more content at our website, allthingsafib.com, and check out our Twitter feed, at allthingsafib. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay regular, my friends. And now time for the obligatory disclaimer. All content on allthingsafib.com, including podcast and blog conversations, are meant for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical care and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you have a medical condition, you should seek out a medical professional for consultation. Any use of information from allthingsafib.com or its associated content is at the user's own risk.